Welcome, and thank you for joining this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. The Association's Digital Digest series features a range of podcasts and videos focused on the latest resuscitation science topics. Thank you for joining us, viewers. My name is Dr. Raina Merchant, and I'm an emergency medicine physician at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm the incoming chair of the American Heart Association Emergency Cardiovascular Care Committee. And hello, my name is Beth Mancini. I'm the Senior Associate Dean for Education Innovation at the University of Texas at Arlington, and I am the current chair for the Education Science and Programs Subcommittee of the ECC. So welcome. Today we have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Carl Kern, who is the current chair of the American Heart Association Emergency Cardiovascular Care Committee. Welcome, Dr. Kern. Thank you. We're looking forward to hearing more today about CPR and the history of CPR and hands-only CPR. Can you tell us a little bit more about what CPR actually is? CPR is simply a technique to uh, provide blood flow to the organs of the body when the heart's not doing its job. It gets confused often uh, with a heart attack. A heart attack can cause cardiac arrest, but it's actually the step where the heart no longer is pumping forward blood flow. That can happen either because it stops beating, it has no heartbeats uh, that are effective, or it can actually go too fast or quiver in what's called ventricular fibrillation. The result is the same. No flow, and the organs, particularly the brain, begin to suffer right away. One falls unconscious, and if uh, not treated, it's clearly a, uh, a mechanism that will lead to ultimate death. When we think about cardiopulmonary resuscitation, we often think about the American Heart Association. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the history. Uh, the American Heart Association is well known for its involvement with uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Probably its biggest brand uh, that's recognized by the, the population of the whole world. CPR really had its beginnings um, in the late 50s, early 60s. Prior to that time, if you had heart stoppage or cardiac arrest, the only real treatment was to open up your chest, put your hand in there, and actually squeeze the heart directly to create some blood flow. Obviously, that has limited applicability. And so in the late 50s, early 60s, um, the discovery was made that by pushing on the chest, you could create some flow. It's not a normal amount of flow. It's not what you're used to, but it's enough to keep the most important organs of the body alive particularly the brain and the heart, so that the heart can respond to further treatment and begin to beat on its own. Um, the real excitement was really uh, started uh, in uh, Baltimore, really, at Johns Hopkins, where um, during an experiment to try to shock the heart, they noticed when they pushed hard to make sure the paddle had good contact, they could see a little bump in the aortic pressure. And when they pushed rhythmically, they could actually produce um, blood flow that would, again, help the heart, help the brain, and keep those two vital organs uh, viable. Um, for many years, it, that's, it, it began with compressions, uh, and then actually people began to think, well, we need to replenish the oxygen. And so the concept of ventilation interposed with the compressions was introduced. And again, for the lay public, mouth-to-mouth um, -mouth breathing. And the two were married for uh, you know, several decades, frankly, as the way to do uh, CPR. The problem was that 
in some uh, some communities, the citizens were simply not willing to do that form of uh, rescue. Whether it was fear for disease, transmission, or whatever, um, certainly the aesthetics of mouth-to-mouth -mouth contact with a stranger was an impediment. And so um, in a number of centers, including that where I am at the University of Arizona, we began to wonder, well, how important is the breathing part? Uh, what's the key component to save a life, even if you have some price to pay? And so we began to explore compressions only, or hands only, as it's now called by the American Heart, and found that, frankly, um, in the first 10 minutes, maybe even 15 minutes of a witnessed adult, this is not true for children whose arrest is often first precipitated by a respiratory problem, but for a witnessed adult who collapses in front of you, that compressions only was uh, very helpful and probably enough uh, for those first 10 to 15 minutes. And then clearly, uh, sooner or later, you must uh, do some breathing and replenish the, the oxygen. We actually started that work in our uh, laboratory in the 90s. Uh, some other centers, uh, right about the same time, Max Harry Wiles group uh, comes to mind, for example. And it went slowly for about a decade in the experimental laboratories. But about uh, the 2003-04 era, we, we were convinced that this really needed to be um, a new approach, and we began that uh, in earnest in Tucson, then quickly throughout the state of Arizona, and found uh, without a randomized trial, but just with a kind of before and after cohort experience, that indeed we were saving lives. In fact, every community in our state who got on board uh, within the year saw their survival rate double or even triple. American Heart got very interested and by 2008 had adopted, uh, again, what they call hands-only CPR as the preferable technique for citizens. They have continued to um, feel very strongly that medical personnel should learn traditional CPR with some form of ventilation. And uh, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think um, eventually, again, the piper must be paid. But from that point, uh, it's really been propagated uh, worldwide. And um, the number of lives saved is a little bit of an estimate. We know in, in Arizona it's about 3,500 in the last 10 years. But if you take that population and kind of multiply it worldwide, we're talking substantial number of lives that may be benefited, mainly because people will do it. Mm -hmm. uh, a very recent study just this last week uh, shows in circulation uh, from Stockholm, Sweden, that um, in a fairly large group in their, their community, they, they have shown that both techniques save lives, and but interestingly, the incidence or the use of compression-only CPR has increased while traditional CPR in their community is actually going down. That's incredibly insightful and I think gives people a lot of information about really the background of CPR and why it's so important. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this concept of high-quality CPR mm -hmm. and who can really perform it? They're kind of tied together, in mm -hmm. fact, so that what, one of the great lessons we learned early when we were considering removing the, uh, the ventilatory component or at least delaying it was that anything that interrupts compressions compromises hemodynamic support. So if you're generating the blood pressure and ultimately the blood flow, to the brain and the heart with your compressions, if you interrupt that for, say, to put in a 
a central IV or to intubate the patient or even to take, uh, do the two breaths, uh, there's a price to pay. And that price often means there's less blood flow. And then interestingly, um, it takes a while to build that blood flow back up to where it was. It doesn't immediately go up and down, but in fact falls and then you must build it up so that if you, in the days when we started when it was 15 compressions, um, literally only about five of those 15 compressions were optimal flow. It took you 10 to get up to that level. And then if you interrupt it again, it took you 10 more to get back. So to me, it was, it's amazing that anybody survived back in that era. They did, but uh, obviously we could do better. One of the great steps forward was when we said, oh, let's do 30 compressions then before the two breaths. Clearly, that's, that's been beneficial. Provides more hemodynamic support and, and blood flow. But from that lesson, we learned that anything that interrupts needs to be really thought about. Do we really need a pulse check? Probably not if it comes at the cost of a minute of trying to feel and, uh, and stopping any kind of compression. Same thing with do we need to early, to intubate the patient early? Probably not. So that's one aspect of high quality CPR, minimize uh, interruptions. But we also have learned other lessons along the way. Um, one is that uh, you, need to, you need to pump a fair number so that the current recommendation is 100 plus or minus uh, 10 or 20. But I'll really be, it's certainly we've gone away from 60. We know that that's not quite enough. And then finally, we've learned that you can't lean on the chest. It becomes a real temptation. This is hard work, but you really must get your hands off and allow the chest to expand in order to keep the blood flow maximum. And uh, if you do all those things, then whether you're, whatever you want to call it, um, you're really doing the best high quality work that you can do and maximizing the chances to give enough flow to where the outcome will be not only survival, but survival with good neurologic function, which is clearly the goal of all of us. Absolutely. So let me ask you one more question, Dr. Current. When you talk about high quality CPR, what, what recommendations do you have for us about education yeah. so that how people can develop and retain these skills? Well, Beth, as you know, we've certainly gotten to the point where we're asking people not just to study this, but practice it. And if we've made any good changes, I think uh, we've made a number, but one of them that really stands out for me is that we really now want people to spend more time working on the mannequin and the, the, the actual performance of compressions and whatever, even traditional CPR, than just talking about it. it it's a physical skill that takes time and takes practice. So number one, you need to do it. Um, Number two is I think you need to do it often. And we're clearly, you know this better than I, but we're clearly moving into the realm where, you know, two years is not enough. Every two years is, you're not gonna retain this. So you need to practice this on a very regular basis. And some of the newer programs by American Heart clearly are pushing that concept where, you know, every six weeks, you gotta do 10 minutes of CPR. And just like you would exercise the rest of your muscles, save that muscle memory of what you've really practiced and mastered about performing CPR by doing it more frequently. Thank you, Dr. Kern. And thank you viewers for participating today. We appreciate your time. 
Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. For transcripts of this podcast and more information about resuscitation science, please visit cpr.heart.org or engage with us via social media using hashtag ECC Digital Digest.